Welcome to the Mornings with Sue and Andy podcast for Thursday, June 15th. As Ukrainian forces push forward in their counteroffensive, Russia is stepping up missile attacks on cities and critical infrastructure. We get the latest on the war between Russia and Ukraine with Andrew Rasoulis, fellow at the Canadian Global Affairs Institute and expert in Eastern European affairs. Are you or a loved one struggling with mental health? Mental health advocate and social worker Karen Gallagher-Burt joins us for our mental health moment. This time out, Karen shares some tips on talking to our teens about the difficult topic of suicide. And finally, this Sunday is Father's Day. Looking to impress Dad with some great eats? If that's the case, you'll want to be sure to find the perfect brew to complement your Father's Day feast. We learn the art of brew pairing with Michelle Tam, head of education at Labatt Breweries. Russia stepping up missile attacks on Ukraine as Ukraine pushes forward in their counteroffensive. The latest on the war between Russia and Ukraine. We'll break it down now. Joining us once again, Andrew Rasoulis, fellow at the Canadian Global Affairs Institute and an expert in Eastern European affairs. Thanks for joining us once again, Andrew. Good morning to you. Good morning to you, too. Uh, let's talk about uh, the latest and the state of the Ukrainian counteroffensive. What exactly is Ukraine and the, the military doing there to push back against Russia at this point? Okay, so these are early days of the offensive. Both the Ukrainians in their offensive and the Russians and their defensive are, heavy, are very prepared and are fighting heavy battles. Uh, the Ukrainians are moving uh, to the East. They have penetrated in a few areas of the front, most notably in the Bakhmut area. These are tactical advances. The Russians have lines of defense. Their main line of defense is about 20 kilometers further east of where the fighting is. So the Russians are conducting what one assume is a limited plan-type withdrawal to wear down the attacking Ukrainian forces as they move toward the main Russian line. The, the, the difficulty here for the Ukrainians is how to penetrate the Russian lines without having enough, without the Russians causing attrition on the attacking forces, so when they reach the main line of Russian defense, they're too weak to push through. This is, this is what you call a fixed, like a heavy battle, fixed Russian defense against a fixed uh, Ukrainian offense. I want to ask you this, Andrew, something that uh, we've touched on briefly but we do know about the support that the Ukrainian people are having globally when it comes to supplies, resources, etc. When it comes to the Russians, we've heard a lot about those Iranian drones uh, that have been, you know, sent to help Russia in their battle. Any other countries providing, uh, you know, military support for Russia? Well, we know that uh, North Korea is providing uh, support. Um, the Chinese are providing economic support. Uh, not direct military support, but some of that can be, you know, dual-purposed. So, so that's, that's also in there. Um, there's also trade going on with India, but in terms of, like, like there's a lot of dual, stuff of what you call dual-purposing stuff. So it's civilian trade, but there can be adaptations done. And so the Russians have been very good at doing uh, sanctions evasion and, and sanctions avoidance. So although there are these things, the Russian, the bottom line is the Russian war machine is able to function, they have ammunition, they have equipment, and they're able to conduct their operations. Andrew, last week there was a breach of a, an important dam in Ukraine, and that has people even more worried now about the nuclear power plant that we've been talking about for months here now, well, over a year. Do we have any idea of the extent of damage and how it might be affecting the nuclear power plant? 
the nuclear power plant uh, currently it remains safe. Uh, the uh, Atomic Energy Commission uh, head is visiting that plant, in fact, today uh, to conduct checks on where things are. So as we speak, there is no immediate danger to the plant and its safety. It is operating off a, a water reserve, and it's in a cooling phase. The plant has not been operating for some time now, but it is... Uh, vital to keep the reactors in a cooling position. So that water is, is key for that. But it is under control. The rest of the waterway has basically dissipated. So the flooding is now receding. And we're going to see what happens in the, in the, in the upcoming weeks, perhaps, whether the, 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 the banks of the river will be dry enough for the Ukrainians to try some military operations down there. The flooding has, has basically uh, negated any Ukrainian attempt for an amphibious assault in the very south. So Ukrainian forces are now just operating north of that area that's heavily flooded and trying to, trying to penetrate the Russian line. Andrew, uh, we know that NATO leaders are slated to meet next month. What role will NATO play as we, we move further uh, down the line when it comes to this conflict? Are we expecting something different or just kind of staying the course when it comes to NATO? Um, it's, it's more or less staying the course um, in the sense that the NATO defense ministers are meeting and they're preparing the NATO heads of government meeting in Vilnius 11-12 July. Now, one of the, from a political point of view, uh, one of the key uh, decisions that have more or less been reached now uh, is that uh, Ukraine will not be invited to join NATO until the war is over. There has been heavy debate on this point, um, and there is lack of consensus. The Poles and the Baltic states wanted to bring Ukraine into NATO now or sooner, like sooner the better. But uh, other countries, United States, Germany, uh, and France have said, no, we don't want to take a risk of a third world war engaging Russian forces while the war is going on. Now, having said all that, there is, there is very heavy discussion continuing and will continue until the Vilnius summit on security guarantees. So whereas NATO would not bring Russia, uh, Ukraine in, other NATO countries like the United States, Britain, France, Germany could uh, offer uh, bilateral types of guarantees or security enhancements. These things are currently being worked on. So that's the political commitment side. On the military side, uh, there will be continued support in terms of equipment um, and and uh, and, um, and and finances. Now the Ukrainians have already lost uh, numbers of uh, Bradley fighting vehicles and a few Leopards. So the question will become. How many of these vehicles can be replaced by the West as the Ukrainians continue the fight? Because the one thing is almost certain is that th this offensive operation will take months, weeks if not months, because both sides are very well prepared for it. You know, on the flip side then, how is Russia still able to sustain their effort? We, we've been hearing for some time as well that, you know, young Russian men were fleeing the country. There's, you know, they were conscripting people into the war effort. Do they have the manpower to keep going? Yes. Um, so we heard stories. Yes. So those people have gone. But the, these uh, these uh, these type of individuals, I would call outliers. They are, when we see political demonstrations in Russia, whether there are people voting with their feet, if you will, by leaving the country or demonstrating or even sending those those drones perhaps over the Kremlin. These are in in terms of the Russian political construct. They are outliers. They are not having a dominant effect. The majority of Russians uh, who are required to serve in the military are serving in the military, and the Russian units are manned according to where they're supposed to be manned. Now, the other bottom line to all this, the Russians have not 
uh, maximize their potential. Their uh, last call-up was for, uh, they have about roughly 300,000 under arms now. They could potentially go to 800,000. So they're still trying to fight this war as if it's not a major war. Yeah? Whereas Ukraine is on the other side fighting this as a major war with everything they've got in it, and they've fully mobilized. So we'll see where it goes. But right now, the Russians are able to sustain the war effort, and they have the troops that they are decided they want to have, and they have the potential to get more. Andrew, thank you so much for the update. We appreciate your time. You're very welcome. Andrew Rasoulis, a fellow at the Canadian Global Affairs Institute and an expert in Eastern European affairs. I think, frankly, we can't talk enough about our mental health. And keeping the conversation going with us regularly here on QR Calgary is Karen Gallagher-Burt, mental health advocate and social worker at the Distress Centre. Hi, Karen. Good morning. Thank you for being in here. I know you come in live whenever you can. It makes it a, a much better conversation that we can look each other in the eye. And I think, you know, that's what we've been missing a lot over the past few years, which is partly what's led us to where we're at and needing to have these conversations about our mental health, right? 100%. Yeah. 100%. Okay, so let's talk about, um, you sent us this link. It's something that's very difficult to talk about, but it is something that we need to discuss. Youth suicide attempts. So we're seeing it rising globally, not just here in Canada, but around the world as we come out of this pandemic. Yeah, it's been um, incredibly difficult. And I certainly applaud the staff at places like the Children's Hospital because they're outstanding in what they provide. It's the limitations around what's available and the lack of beds. And we could do this as a a political conversation, but it's not. Mm -hmm. What it is, it's a conversation about our kids need some help and we're not always there for them with services. It's just uh, we're a little behind, I think, in some of the other provinces and what we offer, although every province is experiencing the same crisis. Well, you know, it's interesting, though, because there's such a disconnect for me, because in so many ways we are much more connected today than we were five, ten years ago. And it doesn't have to be within the borders of a province that we are left behind. That's bizarre to me. You know, it's interesting how how money is invested in health is always interesting to me. Um But I'm always a big believer that the intervention, early intervention and prevention, if possible, is the way to go. So you think about what our kids take in school. um, Very little is taught about mental health. Maybe a tiny bit when you get to grade 11, 12. Mm. But not enough. It's not enough. And and things like our comm class, while I appreciate the intent behind the comm class, I know way too many kids who say, well, that's the one I'll take in summer school or online because for them it's not valuable. So I think there's a gap in how we're teaching kids to talk about their own mental health but be aware of everyone else around them. And having that one, uh, what do we call them, the resource person in the school. One person per school. Guidance counselor, thank you, which... Mm -hmm. I don't even, do they talk about mental health? Or are they guiding you more in, you know, what classes you need to take and which level, et cetera? You know what? I think you're dead on there. I, um, what I experienced with my kids going through school, and got to admit my baby's 33, so it's been a while. Um, but the reality is, is that guidance counselors, their scope is more limited mm-hmm. than what it used to be. And one can't service all those kids. No, it can't. And you need almost a whole wellness center to wrap around them. Years ago, I remember Forest Lawn had a wellness center. Uh, Forest Lawn High School. Really? I don't know if they still have one, but it was an amazing place where they did have access to tons of resources for the kids. You, we're talking about the resources within the community. What about the resources within the four walls of our homes and the conversations? I've, I've got teens at home, I've, yeah. uh, toddlers. I've never talked to my teens about suicide. So, uh, you know what? It's interesting because I think the kids are very aware. So go back to the old days when we didn't talk about the birds and the bees. 
Um, now our kids know way more about that than they ever did. Um, us, way mostly. too soon. Yeah. And, and I think <laughs> mental health, suicide, those conversations mm. don't come up. But there's always opportunities when something comes up in the media. And I remember when Robin Williams died by suicide. In our house, there was big conversations. Earlier this year, Twitch from The Ellen yes. Show, when Twitch died by suicide, there's another opportunity. So if you look for ones that are bigger outside of your own family, it's a great place to just start having conversation about, hey, if you're any of your friends or have you ever thought about suicide? And you may think that's a scary question to ask, but in my world, it's scarier not to ask. I agree. They know. Yep. They know already. They know who's doing it. They talk about it, not necessarily themselves mm-hmm. trying it, but that's certainly part of their world. A new study by the UFC found emergency department visits for suicide attempts among youth under 18 up by 22% during the pandemic. Yep. Visits from young people experiencing suicidal ideation grow, rose globally by 8%. So clearly it's an issue and we need to talk about it. Yeah. It's not something you can hide from because it is happening. It's out there. And what's the alternative? Yeah. And I think, I think the big thing is, is learning how to use the language. Um, our, co- our friends at the Centre for Suicide Prevention, we have the best uh, suicide library in all of Canada. And they are wonderful with their education. Whether you take a three-hour course to just have the basics or two full days and understand how to do a full suicide intervention, to me, those are courses that should be mandatory, mm. along with uh, drinking and driving and learning about what that looks yeah. like. Give my kids those two things and prep them for life. You know, we can't tell what's in somebody's head, Karen. Uh, absolutely, that's not the case. But by behaviors and actions, not to know that someone's contemplating suicide, but in general, how do we know that, you know, maybe I should have a conversation with, with, with my son or daughter or, or neighbor or coworker. Right. Something's not right. Well, I will say this. There's no one pattern. So we know that there is a number of different ways people could show that they're thinking about suicide. But there's some common themes. Um, when people ta- start talking about feeling hopeless or they're just not looking forward to the future, we look for people whose just their patterns change. So if they're normally very quiet and all of a sudden they're much more outgoing, they seem to be pushing themselves into something, it's a change. So that's one minor thing. But when you start to observe some changes in behaviors and patterns, maybe they're isolating, um, you know, different things like that, there's room to ask the question. I always say if I can get three feeling words out of someone, I can ask a suicide question. If I'm chatting with someone and they say, yeah, I've been feeling really sad lately, then, you know, what do you mean by sad? If the sad becomes, well, you know, I'm feeling depressed. Mm -hmm. Well, have you seen your doctor? Well, no, it's too. So now I've got a couple of words, sad, depressed. I have space to ask a question. Lots of times when people feel sad or depressed, they think about killing themselves. Are you thinking about suicide? And we don't ask the question because we're terrified that people are going to say yes. Exactly. Um, But it's just like with um, CPR. Honestly, with uh, you learn how to do CPR on someone. Suicide's the same thing. If you ask the question, they say yes. You don't have to be the magic person. You have to be the person that stays with them until someone more qualified Mm -hmm. shows up, just like when you're doing CPR on someone. Thank you so much for joining us. Tough topic for sure, one we need to have. Karen Gallagher-Birch, mental health advocate, social worker at the Distress Centre. Uh, by the way, chat and text available 24 hours a day for you at 403-266-HELP. Thanks, Karen. Whether you plan on cooking for dad or with dad this weekend, we have the perfect beer pairings to make this a memorable Father's Day. Joining us to discuss picking the right beers for dad is Michelle Tam, who is a certified, oh no, I'm going to have to get you, Michelle, to tell us what exactly your title is with Labatt Breweries of Canada. Good morning to you. How are you? 
Good morning, Sue. It's a certified Cicerone. Cicerone. Okay, explain what that actually means. So much like a sommelier is to wine is what a Cicerone is to beer. So I have the great privilege and the lovely job of being able to talk about beer all day, and especially my favorite part, talking about how beer goes with food. Well, you've Andy's ears, if, if they could actually just literally perk up, they just did. I am very <laughs> excited to talk with you about this uh, topic, Michelle, because for me, you know, the best pairing is cold when it comes to beer. Uh, I did not realize that we should be choosing different flavors to go with our food. Now, I know when you talk about wine, if it's a chicken, for example, uh, with a salad, you might want a white wine, a heavier meal, uh, like a pasta, really good with a red wine. I kind of know some of those rules. How does the beer shake down when it comes to pairing? Well, there's over a hundred different styles of beer in the world. So it'd be hard to imagine they can't find the perfect food to go with each style. But really similar to what you mentioned, a big, heavy pasta dish with a nice, robust, intense, and bold red wine, we can do the same thing with beer. We have light and delicate styles like lagers. And you have more robust and bold and bitter styles like IPA. And the same rule of thumb applies, bold foods with bold beers and delicate beers with delicate uh, foods. And, uh, and also, we're not limited to just beer. We have non-alcoholic beer uh, is a great option as well. Um, and then also, we can look outside of beer and look at flavors that come from such ready-to-drink products as sodas and seltzers that give us different flavors to play with. Yeah, Michelle, I was going to ask you about uh, non-alcoholized beer. It's certainly come a long, long way. Uh, is there the, the, the selection in n- you know, non-alcoholized beer that there is in the other? Or are we, are we moving towards that anyway? We're trending in that direction. Certainly, you'll find most non-alcoholic beers in those easy-drinking categories like lager. So, great example of that, the International Pale Lager. Everybody's really familiar with Corona. Corona Sunbrew is a great opportunity to have all of that flavor and to be able to suit those same occasions, but without the alcohol. And then the other thing we haven't even touched on yet, Michelle, is it seems to me coming into prevalence over the past few years is, is using beer as a cooking mm-hmm. aid, we can actually cook uh, quite a few dishes using beer. Absolutely. So this is a great lead into talking about Father's Day. If you're looking for something to do, as you mentioned, you can cook for dad or quick, uh, cook with dad, but also cooking with beer. And uh, there's so many different ways that we can add beer into a recipe to bring in more flavor and more fun. Anything from if you're uh, uh, looking to create something that's more like a meat dish, something like be it barbecue pork sliders. You can do a, a, a roast in the slow cooker and adding in some beer into the slow cooker, allowing it to braise in there is adding so much more flavor and tenderness into it. If you rather use a smoker, you can always put a pan um, uh, with the beer in there as well as it's steaming and smoking in there and integrating the flavor. Huh. Can you do that with a barbecue as well? So if you put a, a pan of beer in the smoker, can you put the pan of beer on the barbecue? Would it do the same thing or would you baste in it or how would that work? So there's a couple different ways you can do it. Um, if you're doing something like pork ribs, if you're going to brine or marinate your ribs ahead of time, you can do that in beer. Uh, so typically we'll do that with salt and sugar and some water. So replacing the water in a brine or a marinade is going to infuse that beer flavor in there. Um, and then, uh, yeah, you can baste with it as well. You can add them into your barbecue sauces if you'd like to make them from scratch. Oh, my gosh. I'm so Boy, hungry. Very ex- I want to ask you one of the things. i got like 30 seconds here, but is it better to have our beer, what, regardless of what we're pairing it with, 
in a glass versus the can or bottle? 100%, 10 times out of 10 in a glass. It allows you to see it, experience it, and allows you to fully smell and taste and appreciate all the flavors that a brewer has put into it. Fantastic. Wonderful advice ahead of Father's Day. I think we're all set now. Michelle, is there a good place where folks can go online? Does Labatt offer up any sort of recipes or or help with the kind of things we're talking about? Certainly. So if you're looking for um, any information on the beers, Labatt breweries themselves, you can find that on social media and you can find myself at at michellesam.beer. Fantastic. Thanks for joining us. Appreciate your time. You're very welcome. Have a great Father's Day weekend. Thank you, Michelle Tam, certified Ciceronian head of beer education at Labatt Breweries of Canada.